from Community Public Radio, this is the CPR News. From New York, I'm Don DeBar. Today we speak with Scott Ritter, best known for being the weapons inspector that advised the U.S. government before the war in Iraq that Iraq did not have weapons of mass destruction. He's also an author and a sought-after political commentator, and he has a long background in military intelligence. We spoke with him via Skype. Scott, I'm glad to have the opportunity to speak with you again. And uh, you were suspended by Twitter for some nondescript violation of community standards, if they said that much the first time. Uh, you filed a challenge to that, whatever process that is, uh, and they, then you were reinstated. Um, and then uh, f- for some other reason, you were again suspended. Is that correct? And uh, then after that suspension, it came to your attention that someone uh, is uh, pretending to be you, basically, with a, you know, a similar name, only the, I think it was New Scott Ritter or so- something similar. Uh, you noticed it, said this is an imposter and you know fraudulent account. You notified them under their process, and they wrote back, in essence, this, in fact, exactly this. We investigated the reported account and determined it is not in violation of Twitter's misleading and deceptive identities. Policy. <laughs> yeah. now, they're pretending to be you, but that's yeah. not a violation of their misleading and deceptive identities policy. So I, I wonder what is. Um. We don't know. I mean, the Twitter rules apparently are whatever Twitter interprets them to be. Uh, I, I'm permanently suspended now from Twitter. Uh, they, they said it's, it's all over. Um, and I'm, I'm suspended for, again, abuse and harassment on two tweets that abuse and harass nobody. They simply took a counter-narrative uh, approach to a very um, sensitive uh, topic. That is the, uh, the murders of Ukrainian civilians in Bucha. Who did it? There's the million dollar question. And all I did is look at the data and 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 interpret the data uh, to be that the Ukrainian National Police are responsible. Um, the Ukrainian government has put out a counter narrative. Uh, they accuse Russia, but they've provided no um, no hard evidence to back this up. Indeed, the, the, the evidence that they could have collected, that is, a treating it as a crime scene, doing the forensic analysis of the body has been cleaned up. Those bodies have been buried. Um, you know, we will never get that data. So, you know, I, I understand how people could disagree with me. Um, I don't understand how what I did could be construed as being abusive or harassment, but apparently it's not. It's just Twitter um, yielding to pressure from, I believe, the U.S. government, not about me individually, but about the, the concept of allowing their platform to be used to disseminate a counter-narrative and denying the ability of that counter-narrative to gain traction, to gain attention. Um, if for some reason, you know, I think the algorithm learned to hate me because I went from a guy who would post what I believe to be responsible tweets about, you know, arms control. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd get, you know, uh, you know, 12 likes and uh, four comments, you know, and, and maybe three retweets. Um, and then I, I went to a guy that uh, suddenly had close to uh, 100,000 followers. Uh, and when I tweeted on an issue, uh, I was getting thousands of likes, thousands of comments. 
Um, I don't know what an impression is in the Twitter world, but I was getting close to 3 million impressions on some of these tweets. And um, the algorithm probably just uh, you know flashed red and they said, we have to terminate. You know, and I, I, I think that's a, I really don't think there's a human being there until you get the appellate process. And the appellate process is a human being who is weighing what I'm saying with what the algorithm's saying. And the algorithm is the business model of, 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 of Twitter. Um, the algorithm was designed to keep Twitter out of um, out of legal problems with uh, with the U.S. Congress. So, um, you know that the the they they suspended me because of the of of the algorithm. Um, Twitter's making my computer go crazy. Can you still see me? Yes. It's, all right. For then I'll just continue. I'm not going to click anything because I may end up <laughs> killing the computer. <laughs> but. <laughs> So anyways, that, that's what I think happened with, um, there we go, I, I fixed it. Look at that. You can teach an old dog. But um, I, I think that, you know, I was suspended because of the algorithm, uh, not because of any rules violation. And I don't know how to respond to the new Scott Ritter thing because I read their 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 uh, rules very carefully about what constitutes impersonation. The guy took my photographs without my permission. He recreated visually my account. And then he said, I am back, implying me, not the fake guy. He didn't say, I'm a fake guy pretending to be Scott Ritter. I'm back. This is a parody. I'm a fan of Scott Ritter. He said, I am back. So uh, the rules are very clear about this. And yet they decided that um, when it came to me, the rules don't matter. It was okay. And the danger of that is, I mean, I'm off their platform now, but I'll tell you why it's not just a humorous thing. Because at first I was like, all right, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't care. But then I was like, no, wait a minute. You know, I didn't go into Twitter to get followers. That wasn't my goal. But somewhere along the line, a, a, a portion of the Twitter community decided that they wanted to listen to what I had to say, for better or for worse. Right. And therefore, there is an inherent responsibility to ensure that what is being put out in my name genuinely reflects what I want to say. Right. People disagree with me, agree with me, whatever. You have someone come on. And, and again, this is sort of humorous, but you know, I started Twitter. It took me three years to get 4,000 followers. Three years. The guy who called himself New Sky Ritter came on. In an hour, he had 6,500 followers. Right. And the mm -hmm. only reason is that they thought they were following me. Exactly. So they were reading things coming from this guy thinking it came from me. Right. And it didn't. And that not only is a disservice to them, but if you're going to say that there's a Ritter brand, whatever that is, it's destroying the Ritter brand. And Twitter was facilitating the destruction of the brand they found to be algorithmically offensive. That that's aspect, what made this a problem. That aspect would actually be actionable for whatever that's worth. There's just, you know, my, my kind of favorite area of work is uh, political uh, media analysis and just like sort of a macro shot of, of what this is like in terms of context you have on the one hand you know you, everybody notices and everybody's aware of the fact that there's a monolithic voice that speaks through the media now that there's no dissent whether it's democracy now on one side or fox on the other and everything in between on most of these issues where you have war and peace issues not how or what's going on but 
the bottom line what to do about it. Here they might say America bad too, but Russia bad. So don't defend Russia. And here they're just like, you know, Putin's evil devil, you know, put a snake through his heart. This narrative, because the changes in, in the uh, communications law and, uh, and other law and practice and some things uh, running from uh, Reagan suspending the fairness doctrine to Obama allowing propagandizing of the American public with our own tax dollars, you now have, in essence, a situation where the CIA and the Board of Broadcast Governors can generate a narrative, economics in the news area, where they basically take the feed from the government because it's the cheapest way to do it. You now have a constant official narrative. And although they're private players that are, you know, speaking. So they have actually the defense of the First Amendment. It's the government's speech. On the other hand, you have someone who's offering a counter narrative, who for whatever reason, by the mysticism of the internet, and also, not for nothing, your reputation as speaking the truth, the last big time they had this, and turning out 22 years, 19 years later, that you were telling the truth and they were lying. That actually has value in, for people that are trying to evaluate what the hell is going on and what they're doing, what the government is doing, in essence, whoever the actual individual actors are, this is the government and, and its agents. They're, they're trying to shut, your de- shut you up because it's, you're carrying a counter narrative and you have enough juice because of this history, but, you know, your brand, whatever it is in people's minds. To, to actually effectively counter the narrative some. And that's why you see the big count. People may or may not like you. They may or may not even like your history after a time. When they hear it, they say, that makes more sense than this nonsense that they're selling us. And that's exactly what the government doesn't want. No, you're right. Yeah, I've been fighting this a long time. Uh, just If you want two war stories that I haven't told before, but they're relevant now. One is when I worked for NBC News. After I resigned from my uh, position as a weapons inspector, I was hired by NBC News to be an on-air analyst. Um, and, and, and I was hired in uh, 1998, the, the fall of 1998. And uh, I was with them during uh, Operation Desert Fox. And uh, I, I gained a, a great cachet with them because I was dead on accurate. Um, I remember once I was with uh, on-air with uh, Tom Brokaw as missiles were flying. And I predicted where what was happening, where the missile was going to hit, and why it was going to hit there as it happened. And Brokaw's like, "Okay." Um, they don't have to do then that. I became, then I became inconvenient because they had a reporter named Claire Shipman. She was the White House reporter, and they would receive every Sunday they receive a briefing off the record by an unnamed senior level person whose name was Sandy Berger, who was the national security uh, uh, advisor, and Berger would give them a briefing and he was briefing about Iraq, et cetera. So I wrote a series of questions and cause they came to me and they said, you know, could you help Claire? And I said, here, want to have some fun? I will guarantee I can get Sandy Berger to lie. And I wrote the questions and it was basically a question tree. Ask this question. If he answers this way, ask this question, boom. But either way, we're going to get to the lie. And so she started asking the question, boom, boom, boom. And Berger ended up stopping her. And he stared at her in front of all the other reporters and said, I know Scott Ritter wrote those questions. Oh, wow. Well, because the reason why he knew is that I used to be part of the system. That's what the Clinton administration forgot, that I was at every meeting. I did everything. I knew everything. There wasn't anything I didn't know. 
And so as they're saying something, I know it's a lie. So I showed how to get to lie. He said, if NBC continues to use Scott Ritter, you will be banned from the White House briefing. Now I'm sitting there going, hooray, all the reporters are going to rise up and do the honorable thing and expose the White House and expose. I got released from my contract. Hmm. There's the first one. The second one is after 9-11, Fox News approached me and they said, we want you to come on and talk about this. And I say, and I literally said, are you sure? <laughs> and they said, yes. So they brought me on. And I remember one of the, one of the first interviews I did was an in-studio interview with Bill O'Reilly. And so Bill O'Reilly, and I talked to a producer, and I come in, I've never met the guy before, and Bill O'Reilly just ends as, as he does. Scott Ritter, Saddam Hussein is in the process of building nuclear weapons, and you're here tonight to tell us how he's building nuclear weapons and why he's a threat. And I said, Bill O'Reilly, I'm here to tell you right now that Saddam Hussein is not building nuclear weapons. He is not a threat. And O'Reilly's just like, <laughs> the producer screaming in his ear and all this stuff. Anyways, they cut. O'Reilly wouldn't even look at me. I left. Now, I had just signed my contract at Fox News, and suddenly the word came down, not only will you not let Ritter back on Fox News, but you will not release him from his contract, which means he can't talk to anybody else. So basically, I sat at home. Put I, could write. Yeah. I could write, and I could do something, but everybody's calling saying they want me on air. I couldn't go on air because Fox owed me. And um, so I'm here to tell you right now, the, the media and the government relationship is real. Yeah. The government dictates to the media. Yeah. And anytime the media deviates from that, uh, there will be a problem. So this isn't something that's new. This has been going on uh, as long as I've been involved in the news business. Because prior to that, I was a weapons inspector and a military officer, and I just didn't do the news. I avoided the media. But once I got into it, I saw literally, I mean, I used to sit in NBC uh, meetings where they'd receive information from their Pentagon person. And I'd look at it and say, well, ask me, what do you think? And I'd say, this is what, what it means. This is what's going on. But we won't give them the professional assessment. And they sat there and they cherry picked things. And the story they ran with that night was 180 degrees different. And when I'd complain, they'd say, no, no, we had all your facts. I said, you had my facts, but you put them together in a string that came up with a different conclusion. They said, well, that's your opinion. And I saw how corrupt it was. And this is Tom Brokaw, the man that America trusts. There's nobody that you can trust in the media. Nobody you can trust in the media because they're all playing the same game, which is to sing the song the government is telling them to sing. It's frightening. It's frightening. Now they're singing... Basically, let's have a war with Russia, in essence. The media is practically calling for that on a daily basis. And and, and no one. And so and let me, you know, I sent this to you and, and, and we briefly touched on it. But I want to just for the people that are, uh, you know, at home watching this, uh, if I can find it now. Um, oh, I know what to do here. Uh, my YouTube account. Um, I've had since maybe 2000, since YouTube started really 2005, 2006 or something. And, um, you know, it's, I, I don't farm viewers, listeners. I put stuff up. So you got to get a 500 to 3000 hits on things. Most of the people that are hitting it, I I'm guessing are people that follow me on Facebook and most of those people are people that are activists. And so there, there's more reach than just those numbers. And, and, 
I don't care about any of that. I'm not, it's not monetized. I don't make any money. I'm not doing this for glory or money. I'm trying to get here's some information. I'm trying to spread it around. You know, you're being so, a good citizen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> and and I'm figuring that this model, you know, it's a good way of spreading it. And and, and so, so I, I get. Um, <laughs> we did this piece a week or two ago, and it was an unusually high uh, hit count, sixteen thousand or seventeen thousand or something. And so it must have triggered some algorithm. Yep. <laughs> okay. Now, just as a very brief aside, as far as algorithms go, people get real paranoid about how effective they are, and they are effective somewhat, but these are the same algorithmic models that they use for uh, the text-to-voice or voice-to-text and for correction, autocorrection. And if you take a look at what comes out on text when you speak, it gives you an idea of kind of the way this thing is <laughs> the kind yeah. of content too, you know. So anyway, I get from uh, from the Google AdSense team, which is some some entity within the great monster Google, um, and I guess they deal with people who monetize their content in one way or another. It says, dear publisher, that says the publisher to YouTube, due to the war in Ukraine, we will pause monetization of content that explicits, that exploits, dismisses, or condones the war. All, all these news agencies, of course, that are you know, getting triple viewers because of the war, that's not exploitation, oh. but whatever. Please note, we have already been enforcing on claims related to the war in Ukraine, and when they violated existing policies, for instance, the dangerous or derogatory content policy prohibit, prohibits monetizing content that incites violence or denies tragic events. This update is meant to clarify and in some cases expand our guidance as it relates to this conflict. This pause of monetization includes, but is not limited to, claims that imply victims are responsible for their own tragedy. In other words, for example, that Ukraine might have caused the war that they're in now, the government might have, or similar instances of victim blaming, such as claims that Ukraine is committing genocide or deliberately attacking its own citizens. That is proscribed on YouTube now. So for to describe the eight-year war that the Kiev government has conducted against the people that live in the east of Ukraine, which you might call deliberately attacking its own citizens, citizens their thing. So that's the, that's the environment. Well, let me let me let me start out by by doing this. Then um, I view this war as a tragedy, an absolute tragedy, an unnecessary tragedy. It didn't need to happen. I wish there was peace in Ukraine. I don't want a single person to die in Ukraine. Um, and I'm hopeful that there can be an outcome that uh, that can happen in a timely fashion to mitigate the harm being done to the Ukrainians. There, Google, take that. That's the God's honest truth. Process it. Because it's true. But having said that, um, I will not condone neo-Nazi ideology. It is a hateful ideology, and I don't understand why Google would uh, seek to block any condemnation of neo-Nazi ideology. And is Google going to block the Washington Post, which ran an article 
that uncomfortably spoke about how the Ukrainian government is using its civilians as a human shield uh, to deliberately provoke the, the Russians into bombarding residential areas to increase the vision of Russian war crimes. It's not me saying that. It's the Washington Post saying that. Is Google going to censor that? What part of war is ugly doesn't Google understand? War is not a copacetic black and white venture. It's about men killing men, and sometimes women and children get in the mix. And the way they kill them is brutal and ugly, and it, it, it's just this is why war should never be fought. But there's nothing Google can do with its little algorithm to clean this up. And if Google seeks to clean this up, all Google is doing is perpetuating myth, perpetuating fiction. If you want to solve a problem, you have to first accurately define the problem or any solution you're seeking is solving nothing because it ain't solving the problem we're seeking to solve. Google is trying to create a fantasy world in its effort to what? Have a solution? No. Google is simply perpetuating the ignorance that will perpetuate and elongate this war. Google, if you think what you're doing is saving lives, you're wrong. You're killing lives. You are condemning tens of thousands of Ukrainians to die in a war that could end today. People only reflected on the truth of what's happening. But instead, you perpetuate a myth. You allow people to think that it, something's happening that's not. You allow them to continue to pour support into a government that has lost this war but is not recognizing its defeat because the American people continue to propagate the myth of the potential of a Ukrainian victory. I, I don't understand what's going on with Google. I don't understand what's going on with anybody. You don't have to agree with a word I said, except I hope you. I hope people understand that just the basic premise, you can't solve a problem unless it's properly defined. And if Google is seeking to censor things, you will never get a properly defined problem out of the Google fact set. You know, we've just gone through a two-year public argument over uh, following the science, believing in the science, et cetera, et cetera, with the population divided over this question in, like, hostile camps. And uh, with the media carrying that banner, you know, believe the science, et cetera, and that their presentation of the science is the science. You know, the science of understanding uh, human society um, and of uh, making policy particularly war policy, particularly war policy involving nuclear armed parties, requires an information flow that is unimpeded, that allows, um, you know, the facts to be openly vetted. And this, an automatic pilot, perhaps, uh, you know, dampening of that conversation basically makes it impossible to practice a scientific uh, method, you know, method as a, you know, on this particular problem, which is an existential problem, by the way. Could you imagine a doctor? Because we're talking about science. Yeah. Let's say I, I come to the doctor. I wake up this morning and I got a rash. And I say, God, I, I might have an allergy. So I've never had allergies, but I, I understand when you go there, they start testing you. Mm -hmm. and they, they hit you up with different tests yep. uh, to see how your body responds. So they can gather the data set necessarily for scientific evaluation to find out what you're allergic to. Could you imagine the doctor coming in and someone saying, no, no, no. If you use a uh, egg yolk uh, on the test, uh, that uh, you can't use that. No, we we can't use peanut on them either. Uh, basically, they eliminate all the tests um, 
so that you can only get one result that everybody will agree to. Uh, right. That's not scientific right. at all. That's the opposite of science. Right. So, you know, that's what's happening here. We're right now, if you look at Ukraine as, a, as an allergy, we're trying to identify what caused it and how we're going to deal with it. In order to do that, we have to test every piece of data that comes before us. It's our requirement. And Google and Twitter and Facebook, they're denying you the ability to carry out the, the requisite tests. Right. Um, so we're not getting science. We're getting fiction. We're getting fantasy. We're getting politics. Right. Science fiction. We're getting Ray Bradbury. <laughs> but he was good. <laughs> actually, he, he probably wrote a story about this kind of dystopian nonsense, actually. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, what, what, do, what do we do? You know, the, the, the need to communicate this information is immediate, obviously. Um, the war is still ongoing, and the voices from inside the government, and like from Congress particularly, uh, and from the administration, and from the media, and across, you know, Hollywood, pretty much the entire, you know, cacophony of voices in this country are driving to a war with Russia. Yeah. In fact, if not, if, if the call isn't overtly to have a war with Russia, it's instead do this to shoot down Russian planes, which means a war with Russia or whatever. How do we, while they are turning off our microphones, find a way to give voice to these facts that will hopefully both inform the public discussion, but also maybe mobilize people to do something about it because something has to be done. No, something has to be, you know, <clears throat> I've always found Elon Musk to be entertaining. I, 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 I respect his uh, business acumen. He's done some amazing things, but I, I just look at Elon. My, my wife calls him an alien. She says this, he's proof that the aliens have come to earth. Um, and, and, but, you know, he has impressed me like nobody else has impressed me lately with what he's doing with Twitter. Um, he goes out and he buys majority stuff. I mean, he, he buys a significant sh uh, share of it. He doesn't join the board. Right. And now today he said, I'm, I'm making a hostile takeover. He said, if I'm going to defend free speech, I have to I have to kill the beast. Right. So I'm taking over. He's put out a price they can't they can't refuse. Um <laughs> And if they do refuse, he dumps the stock and it destroys the, 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 the company. Um, <laughs> that's what needs to happen. We need people who believe in free speech to destroy the beast. Right. Uh, Google and, and, you know, it's not going to be Congress because Congress has made the beast. Congress has created this weird system where they have made these social media companies de facto state actors. Yep. But then they build a firewall that says, no, they're private. So they get the protection of Section 230. That's right. Um, but, and, but they are indirectly, and the, and the Supreme Court has prohibited this. They are indirectly allowing the companies to do that which the government otherwise would not be allowed to do. That is to suppress free speech. Right. So yeah. the, the, the answer is, look, with, with all due respect to you and me and everybody else out here trying to you know, get an alternative point of view, we can't do it. Correct. We don't have the juice right. unless you unless you're Elon Musk with billions of dollars to frivolously throw away. And I don't mean frivolously, but he's not going to make any money off of this. Right. But he so believes in freedom of speech that he's willing to put billions of dollars of his own money on the line to kill the beast. Mm. That's the answer. You talked about driving a stake through uh, something. We need to drive a stake through Google. We need to drive a stake through Facebook. 
and it isn't going to come through legislation. No, so no. now it's going to require, you know, well-meaning American citizens to play the game better than those who play the game currently do. Um, is this an impossible task? Well, Elon Musk is showing that maybe it's not. Right. But, you know, are, is there another Elon Musk out there? It ain't Bill Gates. He's the opposite. That's right. Um, but is there somebody else out there who has the money um, and has the, the the vision to trust the American people to police themselves when it comes to free speech? Yeah. I mean, why can't you trust people? You know, th- this is a thing that, that, that kills me. The greatest threat to the, the democracy isn't disinformation. Right. The greatest threat to democracy is the suppression of debate. That's right. Because I trust that if I took a random selection of American people, put them in an auditorium, and had me go up and debate somebody else, uh, that at the end of this debate, if we're both allowed to say what we want to say, the audience will has will go with their gut. And their gut will tell them what's right and what's wrong. Look, I've done this several times. Christopher Hitchens, you know the name. Yeah, sure. Famous guy. Famous author. I mean, my God, the thought of me, a Thai tongue Marine, engaging in a debate live on stage with the master of rhetoric, political yep. rhetoric. Yep. I went up and, I, and it was a televised, not televised, a broadcast, radio broadcast uh, debate in Terrytown, New York. Oh, wow. Um, and you can find it online. It's there. Um, and I crushed them. Well, if you're, if, if you haven't been deplatformed and you feel there's an, uh, there's a benefit to having me come on and talk with you again, I'd be more than happy to do so. I'd love to. Thank you very much. Okay, Don. Thanks. Take care. Bye. And that's all the news we have for you right now for community public radio. I'm Don DeBar in New York. Thanks for listening.